You're listening to a sermon from New City Fellowship in Manassas, Virginia. New City Fellowship is a diverse community that proclaims the gospel and makes disciples for the glory of God and the renewal of our city. For more information, visit newcityfellowship.net. Dear God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for allowing us to be here. Thank you for the blessing that we have to gather freely to worship and read your word without the fear of persecution or any repercussion. Thank you because we have that privilege. Let us never take that for granted. And I pray that today through the reading and uh, explanation of your word, you would speak to us. I pray that your spirit will change us, shape us, challenge us, but also comfort us and um, just give us hope. Uh, help us see you and love you deeply. In the name of Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen. So last week we started uh, with the first part that I wasn't able to, to finish. And um, I mentioned something important. This section of, of the book of Acts is usually overlooked. People usually see Jesus, like the first part of Acts, Jesus uh, spending 40 days with his disciples after he resurrects and then commanding them to stay and the famous verse of 1-8 of saying go and uh, preach the gospel to Judea, Samaria, Jerusalem and all to the ends of the earth and then people usually forward or fast forward to chapter 2 when the Holy Spirit comes but over, usually overlooks this second part which is where the story of Judas and how he is um, uh, somebody takes his place, uh, which is the case of Matthias. And that's what we're going to talk about today. I believe there's more to this text than we give, credit, give, give it credit for. So last week, we took three exhortations from this text. The first one was uh, we needed to obey, or we, I exhorted us to obey like the apostles did, and wait. We see a constant reminder from Jesus to wait uh, the second exhortation was to gather as a church in one mind, as they did, and also to spend time in prayer. As they waited, the disciples and the, the women and Jesus' siblings not only waited uh, and were gathered in one accord, but they also spent time in prayer. And that's something we need to learn from, and I want to exhort us to continue to do that. Uh, so today we jump in, and I'm going to uh, approach this text with four encouragements or, or reminders for, for us. But let me go ahead and read our text. Acts chapter 1, verses 12 through 26. And it says, Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip, and Thomas and Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and some and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and his brothers. Verse fifteen. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about a hundred and twenty, and said. Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. 
Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle of, and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language a keldama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us. One of these men must become with us a witness of his resurrection or to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justus, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, Lord, you, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. So today I want to I remind us of a few things that are important in this text. And the first one, I want to I highlight and take some time to talk about the mentioning of the women. And initially, on a, on a first reading, it doesn't sound like it's a big deal. But if you remember this, back in those times, women were not usually mentioned. In fact, if you remember in some of the Gospels, when Jesus feeds the 5,000, they only count the men. So we usually bump that number up because of children and women, right? So it was customary for that people in that, uh, in that place and at that time to basically ignore women. But there's something important that it is to be said about Luke. Luke, remember, if you remember, is the, is the only Gentile author in the entire Bible. And Luke is also one of the few authors who highlights women in both of his books, the Gospel of Luke, Volume 1, and the Book of Acts, Volume 2. And this is important because his view is helpful for us today. In the book of Acts, for instance, book, uh, Luke highlights several women, like Mary, the mother of Jesus, Tabitha, or Adarchus uh, in Acts 9, Mary, the mother of John Mark in Acts 12, Rhoda, a servant girl in Acts 12, Lydia in Acts 16, Damaris uh, in Acts 17, and Priscilla in Acts 18. And this is not just, that, again, as I said, in the book of Acts, but in his gospel. In fact, uh, a theologian named Eugene H. Mali wrote an entire volume highlighting this, and he says, It is a fact readily acknowledged by all that in Luke's gospel, not only are women mentioned more often than in, other, than in, in the other gospels, but also, and more importantly, are they seen to play a more significant roles. This is important because I believe that we need to pay attention to this. And before you get nervous about going, li going liberal or egalitarian or anything like that, I just want to make sure you understand that nothing is changing. We need to address these issues, as, as many issues that we need to address, because 
there has been a really bad job that the church has done in dignifying and in even utilizing and allowing women to flourish within the church. And I took some time to dig a little more into this topic, and it is pretty sad, to say the least, to see uh, the church's history or track record when it comes to how we have uh, handled or, or uh, treated women within the church. In fact, reading uh, Rene Padilla, uh, uh, somebody that you've heard me mention several times, a, a Peruvian theologian, he, he says, throughout history, the relationship between men and women has been constantly marked by machismo and misogyny. And sadly, these two have been reflected in biblical interpretation to the point that it is hard to believe today that the Bible provides a firm base for the revindication of women's right, rights in society or church. It is enough to quote as an example the words of Tertullian to women. And if you don't know who Tertullian is, he's one of the church fathers. And he says, Women is a temple built over a sewer, the gateway to the devil. Women, you are the devil's doorway. You led astray one whom the devil would not dare to attack directly. And it was your fault that the Son of God had to die. You should always go in mourning and rage. If you actually do a little bit of digging with the church fathers, you will soon realize that their position in women is less than dignifying. I chose not to include at least 10 other quotes that I've found from church fathers about women. And this is something that I'm not arguing whether women can be pastors or not. That is not my point, and that is not going to change here. I firmly believe that women should be dignified and should flourish within the church, even if the office of elders is exclusive to men. Tertullian is, uh, has an entire book called The Cultu Feminarium, and it's a book about how women should dress. And this is, this is, the, this is one of the quotes. It, Clement of Alexandria, St. Ambrose, Jerome, Thomas Aquinas, Augustine, some of the Puritans, Martin Luther. Some of them, or most of them, have references to women that are terrifying to read. And what I want to make sure you understand is that it is not biblical, it is not biblical to refer to women or treat women like this. It is not. It is just not in the Bible. And in fact, if you take into account how Jesus chose, worked with, and treated women, you will find a completely different take on, it, on, on this. I want to make sure we understand as a church that Jesus is the basis for the dignification of women. I want to make sure that we understand that Jesus treated women in a way that was radically different from his culture. He not only treated women with respect and dignity, he taught them. And that in itself is a huge step. Women were not part of any discipleship groups because they were not supposed to learn. Only men were allowed to do that. 
And the fact that Luke takes the time to make sure that in the birthing of the church, women are mentioned by name, it's a big deal. So, my first encouragement is, for all the women in the church, number one, you don't have to rely on theologians or pastors or any church leader because they will fail you. And we have been failing you for thousands of years. But we have a God, a Savior, who loves women and treats women correctly. So I'd like to encourage all of us, and especially the women of our church, to understand and to know that you are not a second-class Christian. You're not on the sidelines of the church and ministry. You're not relegated to, to kids' ministry only. No. You are all key elements and basic part of the church. We need you. We want you here. Not just as a helper, as in an assistant. No. We need you as an integral part of who we are as a church. And again, I'm not trying to change anything. I'm not promoting any agenda behind anything. I'm just trying to be biblical. And I believe that it is important for us to highlight these things. Unfortunately, our circles do not highlight these things. And I have to resource to, and I'm getting more used to not necessarily reading Reformed commentaries because you don't find these perspectives often. And these are important perspectives to, to take. And then the reality are necessary in church today. Last Sunday we went out to eat, and I've had uh, a really good conversation about how women should be treated in the church. And I've heard some stories of how women have been treated, have been treated in the church. And that's not the first time. That keeps happening. I mean, as far, I, I, I actually witnessed, I was a music teacher, and I was working with a band in a Hispanic church in Woodbridge. And I remember it was, I think it was a Saturday morning, and we were having a rehearsal, and we started putting all the stuff uh, to connecting all the cables and, and, and all that. And then there was a group of women who were part of the worship team, and they set up on the floor and not on a platform. And, and, and I asked them, like, I said, just come, come to the platform. And they told me we're not allowed on the platform that's only for men. This is not a service. This is not a this is just any day during a rehearsal, and the pastor made clear that on top of only being able to allow to use skirts and veils, not only that, they couldn't even step or put a foot on the platform because somehow that's just reserved to men. That's just a small example of things that women have to put up with. And I believe this is not, this is not biblical. So I would like to encourage women, utilize your gifts. We want to be a church that serves you and allows you to flourish because we need you. Churches that do the thing that I just mentioned, apart from, I believe, being abusive, they're also missing out on some amazing, talented people. And I want to make sure we understand there's a reason why Luke mentions women in this account and in his, and in his uh, Gospels. And I believe we need to learn from that. And we are examining how the church began. And 
from the beginning, women played a key role in the birthing of the church. So we need you. Our church needs you. Our city needs you. God created men and women in his image. And when he saw us, he said it was good. So women, you were, you are, and you will always be a key player part of our church and the church at large. So that was the first thing I wanted to say. The second thing I wanted to notice, uh, and I'm going to be saying a lot of things, so you can choose which one you want to take. The second thing is uh, the numbering of, uh, of the people. Remember, Jesus walked on this earth, and he touched and healed and fed thousands of people. Thousands. But then after he dies, he resurrects, and the only amount of the, the, the people left are 120. And it is encouraging to see through the Bible that God always does big things with a few people. If you remember back in, in the Old Testament in Genesis, God began a whole entire nation with just one family. Abraham's family. And that repeated itself again in the birthing of his new family, the extension of, of the Israelites. Now it's not just the God of Israel. Now he's the God of everyone. And in that extension, he utilizes 120 people to birth his church. And this is important. Remember, what is it that Jesus spoke about with his disciples after he resurrected. Remember the, the first part of, of Acts chapter 1? He talked with them about what? The kingdom of God. He spent 40 days with them talking about the kingdom of God. But this was not the first time he addressed the kingdom of God. In fact, he taught about the kingdom of God for a long time before that. And you can read this in the Gospels. And listen to what Jesus says about the kingdom of God. And this is very interesting. In Matthew 13, he says, through a parable, the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but, but when, it ha when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes what? A tree. So that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. And then he told another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in, a, in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. That's how the kingdom of, work, uh, the kingdom of God works. And I want to make sure you hear that God uses few people to do great things. 120 people began the greatest movement in all history. They did not know that this was going to be such a big deal, but it is. We are thousands of miles away in an entirely different continent. They probably didn't even know that this side of the world existed. And now we're here listening to this message that Jesus told them to these 120 people 2,000 years after. So I want to encourage us as a church first. You might look around and say, man, there's just a few of us. What are we going to do? How are we going to reach this city? What are we going to do about this? Think of us as a mustard seed. 
Think of us as a little spore of yeast that, ca- that, that can hardly be seen. But you know what? We are in the best place for God to take all the credit and use us amazingly. Because if we were the largest church in Manassas with the biggest auditorium and the biggest budget, we could probably say, oh, look at all the programs we have. Look at all these beautiful lights that we purchase with the millionaires that come to our church. Any millionaires here that I should know about? But right now, it's New City Fellowship. And we have a few people and our budget is like risky and we're barely having people serving and we're like trying to manage the kids and we're like trying to make sure nobody leaves and everything is just like what is gonna happen and 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 whatever happens that it's good guess whose credit is gonna be it's God there is nothing we can say oh it's because we're so cool It's not your pastor. I can tell you that. It's not your elders. No. And it's not us. It's just God. And that's how it began. With people who were just nobodies. Twelve guys that were just basically nobodies, rejects and weird. That's why I tell you to watch The Chosen because it actually portrays that really well. But we are, as a church, in a really good position to give God the credit. So let's not get discouraged by the size of of our church or the current situation. Because God can show up and he will show up. And let's celebrate the small little steps that we are seeing right now. We have elders. We survived last year. We have some awesome people that are mature Christians who stayed. And that's awesome. And as a person, if you are facing some small beginning or some small situation or difficult situation that you just can't wait to get out of, be patient. Trust God. He's working through you. Even though you can't see it, he is working in you. Even though you might not be able to see it, let's be encouraged that God uses little things, little people, small crowds to do great things. He is faithful. Our job right now is to sow seeds. The same applies with little conversations that you can have. Maybe, maybe we're not the best evangelists and we're not like versed enough or theologically accurate enough to go and give the best presentation to our neighbors and make them fall on their knees and say, please, I'm, gonna, I'm ready to go to your church. But what if we start all saying little, having little conversations with people and those are little seeds that we start showing people and God will bring the fruit Just love on them. Have little conversations. Invite them to church. Talk to them about their religion or even like whatever. Just engage the people around you and let the little things grow and God will provide the fruit of that. Let's be active in that. Let's be like yeast. Let's be like small mustard seeds. God is going to move. And then my third encouragement is a little more complicated. And before I jump into my third encouragement, after we saw the, the play, the plays that women have in the church and how God uses small crowds to do big things, then Peter stands up and starts talking about Judas. And he recounts how he died. And before I move on to my, my, my third point, uh, I don't like when pastors do not address issues that are clearly in front of us, 
And if you're not familiar, uh, th this story, the story of how Judas died, is very controversial. In fact, this is one of the places where uh, skeptics and, and people who don't believe in God, uh, uh, they, they use this to disprove the Bible or Christianity and say that the, the Bible is filled with contradictions. Because if you read Matthew 27 and you put it next to the account that we have from Peter right now in Acts 1, they seem to be contradictory. So let me read to you Matthew 27, get this out of the way, and then we'll move on. Matthew 27 says, and explains how Judas died. Then Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned. He changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, what is that to us? See it, see it to yourself, or see to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed. And he went and hanged himself. But the chief priest, taking the pieces of silver, said, It is not lawful to put them into the treasury, since it's blood's money. Blood money. So they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. If you remember how Peter says, is that it actually says that Judas went and bought the field, and then he fell, and then all his intestines just gushed out. So there seems to be two different accounts here. But thankfully, we have uh, um, people who work on this, and they are called um, apologetic apologists. Thank you. Apologetas. There you go. So, let me just say two things. Both authors agree that Judas' betrayal led to a field that is named the field of blood or a keldama. Both accounts say that the field was paid for with the money that the chief priest gave Judas to betray Jesus. So those two things are exactly the same. But how do we reconcile the other two options? So, in terms of the field, this is what David Churchill, an, uh, an apologist, says. The plausible explanation is that when the priest consulted together and bought the potter's field with Judas 30, uh, 30 pieces of silver, they were actually disposing of the money on behalf of Judas, and so legally the field belonged to Judas. Ironically, this potter's field was the same field where Judas was killed Judas killed himself. Between the two accounts, we learned this field gained the name of field of blood. Partly because it was bought with blood money, partly because it became a burial ground, and partly because of Judas's messy ending after hanging himself there. So that is uh, uh, one of the most plausible explanations about the field. But then about his, his death... How do we reconcile? Did he fall or did he hang himself? And this is what uh, a Christian molecular gen geneticist and science educator says, uh, Dr. Georgia Purdom. She explains this. Gruesome as it is, Judas's death, dead body hung in the hot sun of Jerusalem. And the, and the bacteria inside his body would have been actively breaking down tissues and cells. A byproduct of bacterial metabolism is often gas. The pressure created by the gas forces fluid out of the cells and tissues and into the body cavities. The body becomes bloated as a result. In addition, tissue decomposition occurs, compromising the integrity of the skin. 
Judas's body was similar to an overinflated balloon. As he hit the ground due to the branch he hung on or the rope itself breaking, the skin easily broke and he burst open with all of his internal organs spilling out. There is no contradiction surrounding Judas's death, but rather two descriptions given by two different authors of the same event. All right, so now you know we have an answer. <laughs> he hung himself. He exploded because he was just brought in and everything came out. So, my third encouragement is that nothing can ruin God's sovereign plan. Nothing or anyone can ruin God's sovereign plan. Can you imagine what the, the disciples are feeling when they saw Judas come with the chief, chief priest and, 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 and an army of people trying to, to uh, get Jesus? They probably thought, what is this guy doing? Why would, why would you, he, he was with us, why would you do that? And then they see, the disciples see how they arrest Jesus and they try him and they crucify him. And if I was one of the disciples, I probably was very bitter towards Judas. And I was like, this guy ruined everything. We were having a great time with Jesus. He was in Jerusalem. Maybe he was about to take over and Judas just messed everything up. But that's not what happened. In fact, if you remember, if you re what we read here is that Peter stood up and says, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David. This is, this is important. Why did Judas betray Jesus? Because it was already foretold that he was going to do that. God prophesied that Judas was going to betray Jesus as a part of his plan. Judas did not ruin God's plan. God's plan is sovereign. He is a sovereign God. He does what he pleases. We don't understand why or how he does things, but he is sovereign and his plan will always stand and be fulfilled. Nothing and nobody will ever ruin God's plan. As difficult as it is for us to understand or deal with this, it is completely true. Look at the prophecies that actually foretold that Judas was going to uh, uh, betray Jesus. In Psalm 55, verses 12 to 14 says, For it is not an enemy who taunts me, then I could bear it. It is not an adversary who deals insolently with me, then I could hide from him. But it is you, a man, my equal, my companion, my familiar friend. We used to take sweet counsel together within God's house. We walked in the throng. This is David speaking about Judas hundreds of years before. And then Psalm 41, verse 9 says, Even my own familiar friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, a straight reference to, to Jesus deepened the bread with Judas, has lifted up his heel against me. And Jesus knew it. Jesus knew it all along. John 6, Jesus says, Didn't, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. For he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. 
And then he said it again in John 17. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost. He's talking about the disciples. Except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. God knew exactly what, how everything was going to happen, who was going to do it. He foretold it. And this is a proof that whatever is happening in our lives is all under God's control. It doesn't matter if it's hard. It doesn't matter if we can't understand it or if it's painful. I want to remind us all that nothing and nobody can ruin God's plan. Not even you. God is always in control. Even if you've made bad, mis- bad decisions or mistakes, God is in control of your life. I know it's painful and there are things that we can't just fit into our brain. How did he allow this to happen? Why did this need to happen to me? How is he a good God if this happened to me? We don't understand, but God is always in control. Sometimes the biggest lessons you get are from the least or the people that you least expected. Now that I'm, I'm living in Georgetown South, I've had some really interesting conversations with people. And I met a gentleman. His name is Alfredo. He's Salvadorian. He's 64 years old, and he's been in this country for almost 40 years. And he, is, he works, he does labor. And, and he attends church, and I was talking to him. And he said the most outrageous thing that I felt like God slapped me in the face with it and opened my eyes. And I, all I could say was like, wow, amen. That's like the simplest thing. But the way he put let me tell you what he, he was telling me. He was telling me a story because he talks a lot and I had to just listen to him, which is awesome because you, you, you're just like amazed. They just say it how it is. And, and he was telling me about this, this man that used to go to his church that he used to work with and that he was always complaining about how hard life was and that he was in the, in the, in the heat in July working outside. And he kept saying, like, oh, this is how poor people live. And he was always complaining. And then Alfredo said, literally, but then one day God blessed them with a horrible accident. Those were his literal words in Spanish. Y Dios lo bendijo con un accidente horrible. That's exactly what he said. And I was like, what? And then he proceeded to tell me how this guy ended up almost losing one leg for uh, a reason I won't tell you right here. But that was the best thing that could have happened to this guy. He ended up buying a house, bringing whole, his whole family from El Salvador because of this accident. And it doesn't make sense. And I'm not saying that every time this is how it's going to play. But just the fact that he said, God blessed them with a horrible accident just blew my mind. Because that is very few times we have that perspective. And then I, I, couldn't, I couldn't hold it, and I started laughing, and I just said, I love how you said that. I just, I just loved it. And then he said, yeah, that's how it needs to be for all of us if we're believers. That's what Romans 8 says. And he quoted Romans 8 to me. And I was like, wow, speak. Come on, preach it. And he, he literally said, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. 
And that was such a powerful reminder. And I think we need to be reminded of that today as well. Because that's exactly what happened with Judas. God did not, did not lose control of that situation. God never loses control of the situation, even if it's horrible. God, God's plan is never ruined by anyone or anything. And in this text, God not only prophesied the difficulty or the trial or the, or the pain, he also promised and prophesied a solution. And that's exactly what Peter is doing. He stands up and says, For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. Which is a reference from Psalm 109, verse 8. So, God's plan will never be affected or ruined by anyone or anything. And God will always provide for us. God provided someone to take Judas's place. And they needed someone who had two or met two. Uh, the, this is the criteria that the person needed to meet. That he was with them, with the apostles, since the baptism of John until Jesus was lifted up. And his responsibility was going to be to become an apostle and also be a witness to the resurrection or of the resurrection. And they had two guys that met this criteria. Justice or Joseph or Barsabbas and then Matthias. And they cast lots and God chose Matthias. By the way, this is the last time we hear that the using of uh, the, the church or any Christian uses the casting lots as a, as a way to make decisions. So please don't do that. I don't think that's wise. In fact, significant, a significant element of this is that the Holy Spirit comes after and they, that the Holy Spirit gives them wisdom, so it is no longer necessary for them to cast lots. But it is clear that God chooses Matthias. Matthias is not mentioned anymore in the entire New Testament or in the book of Acts. But we have church history to know that Matthias was also murdered like the other disciples as a, as a martyr of the faith and was a great preacher. But what I want to make sure we understand is that God always provides for his church. God provided the men necessary to continue this mission. And this is important for us. Because as a church, God has also provided for us. We are God's church. We are God's people. And God will always provide for us. He is a good God and we belong to a good God, and He is a good Father, and we belong to a good Father, and us being sinners can give good gifts to our kids, how much more our good Father can do good things for us. And I want to encourage us to remember 
that he provides. And this is a, 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 a more even than women in ministry and all the, this is a touchy uh, topic because for some reason in the reform camp, we have a tendency of always shying away from asking God to do things. We are so into the reformed thinking that God is sovereign and that he will do whatever he wants and we ignore all of the constant reminders that ask and you will receive. Have faith like a child. Knock and it will be open. You will receive. And I believe that our faith is important. I believe that we need to be persistent in asking God with faith for what we need, as long as it is within his will. Of course, if you are asking God for something you want to do that's completely wrong, then, of course, it's probably not going to happen. Well, actually, the worst thing that could happen is that it happens because then <laughs> you're very far off. But I want to encourage us all to press in in asking God for whatever we need. It is okay. It is theologically accurate to ask God to heal someone. It is theologically accurate for, for you to ask God to supply for your needs. It is theologically accurate for you to ask God for, for you to stop suffering. It is okay. It is biblical. God provides. And he has provided and will continue to provide for all of us. So as a church, I want to encourage us, let's pray for our church. During the week, if you are worried about what's going to happen with our church, pray for our church. If, we are, if we're needing people to serve, let's pray for people to step up and serve. If you want people to come to our church, let's pray for people to come to our church. You know what? God wants that more than ourselves. Let's pray and believe that God will provide. And the same goes personally. Do not shy away from asking God for whatever you are going through. Pray with faith. Pray like a child. That's what kids do. I have seven kids right now in my house because we're taking care of three of my, of my nephews. And they ask without restrictions. And guess what? Sometimes just because you're fed up, you're like, okay, here, go. Like that's just how it is. And in fact, that's one of the examples we get in Scripture. You have, we have a God who is good, who loves us. And I want to encourage us to have faith. So if you're praying for somebody, pray. Continue to pray. Press on. Keep knocking on that door. If you're going through a difficulty and it has not stopped, keep praying, keep asking, keep believing. And God answers our prayers. He hears our prayers. As a clarification, he might not answer the way we expected him to answer. He might not answer when we expected him to answer. But he always answers. He's a good, good God. He's such a good God that he gave his only son for us. He provided a savior for us. He saw us all walking away from him, walking towards the cliff of hell, and he sent his son to rescue us.
God did not only provide leadership and a successor for Judas for the church. God provided for the entire world salvation. And he is a good God who comes after us, who wants the best for us. Despite our sin, despite our our mistakes, he comes and he takes us and he says, repent, come to me, I will wipe you clean. I died on the cross for you. I carried your sins away. I am the bridge for you to come back to the Father. Come. And this is the gospel that we preach every single Sunday at this church. The good news that we don't have to be perfect kids because we're not. We will never be. We have a God who's a perfect father, and that's enough. And that he's shaping us. He is working in us. He is loving us. And he died for us. We were sinful. We are still in, in many ways sinful. But he loves us, and he wipes away our sins And he did it on the cross. He was the perfect uh, substitute for our life. He was a perfect substitute in our death. And he also was a perfect substitute in defeating death and sin on our behalf. And in him we have eternal life, free of charge, by grace. But we need to have faith. We need to believe that. We need to come to him and repent and say, I belong to you. And I want to invite us all to do that today. So those are my encouragements for us from this passage. God will always provide for his church. God's plan can never be ruined by anyone or anything. Be encouraged that God always does big things with few people. And my first one, women... You where you are, and you will always be key in the church. So whatever of those encouragements encourages you, take it and spend some time in it this week. With that, let's pray. Dear God, thank you for allowing us to know how your church started and how how we were called in what you have done for us. I pray that today you would uh, allow us to be shaped by your word, encouraged by it. And Lord, I pray that if anyone here needed to hear that or any of these points, I pray that you would um, make it real throughout the week. Give us hope, give us faith, encourage us to serve with passion and to reach our city for you. Thank you because we are a small church right now. We are in the perfect position for you to move. Thank you, God. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.